Hi, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. A quick word that the cast and crew of Alpha Chat, pretty much just me and Amy, we're on vacation the next couple of weeks, but we did record an interview with Joe Stiglitz, the Nobel Prize winning economist, that we're going to run next week, and a separate interview with a drone expert named Ella Atkins that we're going to run the following week, so you won't miss anything. Keep on updating your podcast. I also want to add that a lot of you have gotten in touch with us via phone and email and on Twitter to give us feedback and to recommend ideas for future podcasts. We really appreciate it, and we really encourage you to keep doing that. But for now, let's get right to today's show. On the show today, two topics. China. Economic activity in China has ruined everybody's sleepy August. We're going to talk to Patrick Chauvinek of Silvercrest Asset Management about it. And then second, a tremendously dodgy story about flibanserin. It's sometimes known as the female Viagra. It was approved by the FDA just this week. And today, Thursday, we've discovered that the company that produces it has been bought by Valiant for a billion dollars. We're going to talk about it with David Crow, the FT's senior business correspondent, and Shannon Bond, the FT's U.S. media reporter. Stick around. Lots of fun stuff on today's show. And in the first segment of the day, I am joined by my colleague on Alphaville, Matthew C. Klein. Matt, how are you? Good. How are you? And our guest is the chief strategist at Silvercrest Asset Management, Patrick Chauvinick, formerly also a professor at Tsinghua University in Beijing. He now teaches at SIPA at Columbia, the School of International Public Affairs. Yes. Patrick? Great to be with you. Long resume. Anything else going on? No. Okay. <laughs> China has interrupted our kind of sleepy summer schedule. Okay. Uh, that's our topic today. Patrick, I'm going to start with you. Before we even get to the recent devaluation, before we even talk about the stock market, I want to talk about the broader story there. So the Chinese economy is normally described something like this, right? It's in the process of rebalancing away from its investment and export-led economic model to something that emphasizes consumption. Can you just give us a sense of how progress there is going right now? Well, I think that you know that rebalancing will happen whether the Chinese government embraces it or not. Uh, it can happen in a good way where they undertake economic reforms that unlock productivity, that boost consumption, uh, and support current levels of investment. Or it can happen where the investment boom that has sustained the Chinese economy over the past few years just collapses and that you're left with the need to support consumption at, 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 at current levels, but that the rebalancing is basically the falling away of a lot of growth uh, in the Chinese economy. And unfortunately, I think that they have not made much progress on the necessary reforms, and so we are seeing the gradual collapse of China's investment boom and a, a deep slowdown in the economy. So your argument has been that it needs to liberalize faster, to move more in the direction of market forces and away from the state-led model. And it's not just me saying that. Uh, that's what Premier Li Keqiang has said repeatedly. He says Chinese economy doesn't need more stimulus to plow into more and more in investment and overcapacity. It needs real economic reform. That's what they said uh, Almost uh, two years ago, ago now, in the third plenum of the Communist Party, they came out with a major document that said that they were going to let markets be decisive and enumerated a whole host of reforms. There's been a lot of frustration 
that they have not really undertaken those reforms. And in fact, a lot of those reforms came from earlier documents, uh, five-year plans that had said that that was the direction that the can, Chinese economy Can you economy give us some examples? Take. What are some of the reforms that they said they'd do? But well, how? one of the major ones is uh, reforming the, fi- the financial system, um, which doesn't just mean liberalization. It means holding uh, investors to account. A lot of people invest in things in China because uh, of moral hazard. They think that the government is going to ensure that they make money, and if they don't make money, they're going to get bailed out. And uh, and so, and the government sends that message repeatedly. Um, so I think that you know one one reform that has taken place, and it's a very marginal one, is to institute um, uh, guarantees uh, for bank accounts, uh, deposit insurance. Now we would think that that's issuing a guarantee. Actually, what they were trying to do was kind of circumscribe and say only these assets with banks are guaranteed. Everything else, you're at your own risk. And they were trying to send that message. They're also trying to encourage companies, well, allowing companies to default. But the, but the problem is that when companies default, you, you hear that they default, but then you know things, things go back behind closed doors and they sort of sort it out and, no, and the government ends up bailing people out. So that, that's a chronic problem in China. And it causes lots of misallocation of capital, as you can imagine. If you're if the whole system is allocating capital based on the political risk of, well, will I get bailed out, then they're not allocating capital on actual economic returns. Okay, and a little bit later, I want to get into into that in a little bit more detail, the financial sector reforms. Uh, Matt, I want to ask you a question, though. How Can you just talk about how important this rebalancing process is? Because on Alphaville, we write a lot about global macroeconomic imbalances in trade and capital flows that need to avoid going back to a sort of 2007 state of the world. So what do you think? Well, I think in a lot of ways we've seen some of this take place already where you compare to, say, 2011, where China's investment-led growth was probably at you know, 2011, 2012 at its peak. Commodity prices since then of the industrial inputs that were used to build all this stuff, things like iron ore, things like copper, things like oil, are way down since then. Uh, base, other base metals too. So there's already been a big impact there. You can look at sort of the relative economic performance of, say, Australia versus New Zealand. Australia, they make coal and copper and iron. They sell it to China. They did very well in China, had a lot of demand for this stuff. Since then, not as much. New Zealand also sells a lot to China, but they sell things like milk and meat. So to the extent that you have a shift of consumers and households actually having more spending power to spend on things that make them feel better as opposed to you know, building bridges to nowhere or ghost towns and you know, inner Mongolia, you're, you'd expect to see that kind of shift. And you can also see in other places, uh, you know, certain parts of Africa, other emerging markets. You know, the flip side of this is that when we talk about the way that the reliance on exports, uh, which, you know, sort of was an earlier model, has also changed. And that sort of peaked earlier in terms of the Chinese current account surplus. That probably peaked like 2008 or something, or something around that area, um, partly because they increased their imports of commodities uh, from these countries we just talked about. Um, but you know the flip side of that current account surplus meant that they were exporting capital in incredible amounts to the rest of the world. That led to a lot of misallocations, particularly in the U.S., but not just in the U.S. That's shifted to a degree, so that's say broadly positive. Uh, you know, in theory, you'd think that China, that a country that's relatively poor and underdeveloped like China would be a net importer of industrial goods. The fact that they're still have a very large trade surplus and smaller as a share of the economy, but still very large in absolute terms, suggests that there's probably something strange going on, some distortions in their economy that aren't preventing them from allocating capital efficiently. And 
um, you know, being able to actually catch, gr- do the catch-up growth that we'd expect them to be doing at this stage. I if they do – Can I just clarify oh, something yeah. for our listeners, okay? When you said that this led to a lot of uh, misallocated investment in the U.S. Uh, or imbalances in the U.S., specifically what you mean is that because so much capital was flowing to the U.S. in the middle of the last decade – it held longer-term interest rates down than they otherwise would have been because that money was going into safe assets and specifically treasuries. And so effectively what happened was that that money was channeled into the housing market. That was part of the bubble story, and we know what the outcome there was. I just wanted to make that clarification. You wanted to – Yeah, I mean, I mean that's certainly an argument I've heard. I'm, one thing we definitely know it did is it made the U.S. dollar relatively more expensive than it otherwise would have been, which meant that – all, all the people that were involved in tradable goods uh, and services exports, uh, they basically ended up losing their jobs, relatively speaking. The government, uh, there was had to be some kind of offsetting factor to keep growth steady. That led – Okay. Know, so this is all part of the same right. story. I, I want to get back to China sure. though. Yeah. Uh, I, sure. I think it's important though to put China and China's rebalancing within this global context because the global growth model before 2008 was the U.S. is the consumer of last resort. The U.S. drives consumption and – China and other emerging markets drive output to fill that consumption. And they take the proceeds of that and they lend it back to U.S. consumers in order to keep, keep buying. You had actually also a parallel version of that within Europe that also caused a lot of problems. Uh, I don't think we're going back to that model. But China, when, when that model fell apart and the U.S. consumer could no longer drive that kind of growth, you did see China's net exports – uh, fall as a percentage of GDP, but they replaced that with an investment boom, and so they doubled down on investment, creating capacity in all these different industries, in housing and infrastructure, but for who? For for who was going to be the end user of that? It wasn't going to be external demand, and yet it also wasn't going to be domestic demand because all those resources were being channeled into investment. So that's when we talk about this shift towards a more consumer-driven economy, that's that's the imbalance and that's, that they're trying to correct. Okay. So, Patrick, one question I have. We were talking before about how the Chinese government themselves agree that uh, the economy is unbalanced, that it needs to be shifting, and that they've – in fact, it's not even a new thing. It's been going on for years. You know, the stereotype in the West is that it's an authoritarian regime. They make decisions at the top, and it and all flows through very quickly. Why hasn't it actually worked out this way? I think because they know in their head – but do they know in their heart? You know, they, they, they want a correction without having a correction. And so in principle, it's an easy thing to say, ah, yes, you know, we need a correction in the property market. The property market's imbalanced or, or uh, the stock market's imbalanced or uh, the, the reliance on investment is imbalanced. And it's another thing to actually see those sectors uh, contract uh, and, and to see resources actually go elsewhere. Uh, and and there is – you're right. I mean we shouldn't see China as a monolith. There are lots of different parties – not parties, political parties, but different groups uh, kind of jockeying for – to protect their interests. Although I, I do think that people place a little bit too, emph- too much emphasis on factional – not factional, but, like but entrenched interests, right? Speak, yeah. I mean because the view is, well, it's these entrenched interests resisting change. I think it's more than that. I think it's also uh, – a systemic issue, you know, even if you as an entrenched interest are willing to go along and say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll reform or I'll change, uh, you know, the, then, the, then comes the issue of, okay, well, you, re- you want me to do this. You want me to pull this thread. Well, what if I pull this thread? What, what will happen? Uh, what will unravel in a highly imbalanced economy? 
Uh, you know, we see this with the financial sector. I'll give one example, concrete example, uh, pooling of investment products, which basically is is turning investment products into Ponzi schemes where you're paying out investment returns based on uh, more money flowing in from new investors. And, and, can, and can you just explain how that so works? Ch- so China, over the past few years uh, – Back in 2008, China, almost all of China's lending boom came from banks, from state banks, 90% of it. And there was an informal non-bank lending sector, but it was very relationship-based, and it was not systemically important. Uh, starting in 2010, when the, Chinese, when the Chinese government tried to rein in lending from banks, that was because they, didn't, they wanted a correction without having a correction. They wanted to lend in the, rein in the lending, but they didn't want to stop the investment boom. So all of these non-bank credit channels started opening up, and uh, and some of them were quite risky. Um, some of them were banks basically selling products that promised high returns, and they were paying the returns out of new money coming into other products. And so regulators said, "Well, this is this is a potential problem. <laughs> yeah. uh, you can't. You've got to stop pooling." And they said this actually a couple different times. And each time they said it, the pooling continued. And I think it was a function of just – they said – the banks said, okay, you, you want us to stop pooling. All right. If we stop pooling, we're going to default. On, some of these products are going to default. Oh, well, we can't have that. Okay, you can keep pooling for a while. And so this is what I mean by you know, they wanting a correction without having a correction. Yeah, the status quo bias is powerful everywhere, right, right? politically and within the financial system. Right. It's not but, just in the U.S. But that's particularly, but that's particularly true uh, or particularly problematic when – you know, everyone recognizes that there are huge imbalances that need to be corrected. Okay, we got. Let's talk. Let's talk about the devaluation then. Um, as far as I can tell, the I guess official line on this, the justification for having done it, that goes something like this: the U.S. dollar has strengthened considerably in the last year because China has a kind of de facto peg to the dollar. It essentially had imported tighter monetary policy. And that by widening the band within which the uh, renminbi can trade, it's essentially going towards the kind of market-based market forces that everybody's calling for anyways. And if, in fact, the currency fell, it's because that's where the market pegs its fundamental value, right? You think that's total nonsense, and you've written about that recently. I think it's intuitively appealing to say, well, let the renminbi float, and that's a market rate, and isn't that a good thing? I think what that ignores is both on a formal level what it means to have a market-based exchange rate and then on a substantive level the kind of structural change that needs to take place in the Chinese economy. On a formal level, I think it is incorrect to say that you can intervene to the tune of $4 trillion to keep the renminbi from rising. And then when it wants to fall and you're sitting on $4 trillion, you just let it fall. I mean, basically, that's like building a dam and then calling the water level behind it sea level. Well, it's not. It's an artificial equilibrium that you've created through your intervention. And so my view has been that to get to a real market rate, what you need to do is China needs to draw down its reserves. It needs to intervene in the opposite way that it did and get closer to what would really be a market rate. Now, on a substantive basis, the same thing holds because people – People will point to the IMF saying, well, China's currency is no longer undervalued. It is now overvalued. Case case closed. Well, I don't think case is closed because 
what China needs, China actually needs an overvalued currency to affect rebalancing. Uh, they actually need to draw down on those reserves, where it's just, which are essentially a form of, of frozen savings, translate that into consumer purchasing power. And the only way that that happens is when you defend a currency that is overvalued. Could they do those two things simultaneously? I mean, mechanically, could they let it float under a wider band and at the same time sell off its reserves? They can, but ultimately, uh, you know, ultimately, if you're trying to, if you want to sell the reserves, you are basically propping up the currency at a level that the market wants to take it below. And, you know, I find it ironic that the IMF came out and said, yeah, they're, they're, this is okay, this is cool with us because they're moving towards a, a more market-based currency. And on the, on the other hand, a few weeks ago, they said that the biggest problem in the global economy was lack of demand and that Germany and China needed to create more demand. And one way of doing it, certainly not the only way of doing it, but one way of doing it is to maintain a stronger currency – and translate those reserves into purchasing power. That's quite a contradiction. Matt, you want to jump in here? One thing I'm also wondering about related to this is that when we talk about what makes a market exchange rate, there's also the issue of the fact that it's not really an open economy the way we think of for, say, like the U.S., where money can flow in and out pretty easily. In China, there are all these gates that both on, on both directions. So, I mean, how do, you, how do you see that affecting what we might think of as the fair value of the currency and, and you know, the proper response? Yeah, it's really hard to say that there's a fair value to the currency when the capital account is closed. And there have been people who have made the counterargument to me that, well, if you open up the capital account, uh, money could flow out of China, and then that would actually reduce the fair market value of the renminbi. And that's an entirely valid point. So I think that... The, the point here is that there are a lot of distortions that you have to remove. Um, I do think it's problematic, though, to say that, well, it's all going to flow out over the capital account, and that's going to be fine, because the world doesn't need more capital flowing out of China. We, we, we have a glut of capital in the world right now. What the world really needs is demand. And so uh, I don't think there's really space for China to solve its imbalances by exporting capital. Okay. Let's shift to the stock market. This happened a little bit earlier. This happened in July. China destroyed its stock market in order to save it. That was the title of one of your columns. Uh, what did you mean by that? Well, first of all, it was a reference to the, that famous quote out of Vietnam, we destroyed the right. village in order to save it. What I meant was that, that you know it was clear from many months ago, if not a year ago, that, that China's stock market had become disconnected from the economic fundamentals and the business fundamentals. You sure. Had, the, the brief history of that, by the way, for our listeners, it spiked almost tripling, I think, in the span yes. of about a year or so, and then it fell 30 percent all of a sudden within the span of a few months. Yes. Yeah, so it's, it, it, it tripled at a time when the economy was clearly deteriorating, when corporate earnings were falling. Uh, and valuations, of course, then shot up to extremely high levels. And reality caught up with it. Uh, and, and, and by the way, a lot of that was fueled by margin lending. You talk about you know all, all this credit in the Chinese economy. Um, China achieved, according to many observers, the highest levels of margin lending relative to its market that in any in any market in history, and that was rocket fuel on the way up. Sure. And margin lending, borrowing, in borrowing order to, money to buy stocks, right? In some cases, the stocks themselves being used as collateral. That's right for the borrowing. So that's why it's rocket fuel on the way up, and then it is uh, 
rocket fuel on the way down uh, because people then are forced to sell when the, when the price of the stock goes down. And that's why we saw such a steep correction. Now, at that point, the Chinese government stepped in and said, no, stop. Um, and it intervened by uh, ordering brokers to buy, ordering um, different government institutions to buy. It also started kind of warning short sellers or sellers at all, at all uh, that, that they could be in trouble if they sold at the wrong time. Uh, and, uh, and that has – it hasn't really boosted the market. It's, it's kept it from falling. And I would say that first of all, you know, you look at the valuations right now. The valuations, half the stocks trading uh, on the mainland are trading at more than 72 times earnings. Still pretty high valuations. And every time that there's even a hint, just over the past couple of days, every time there's even a hint that, um, that the government's going to stop buying and stop intervening to prop up the market, you see not only does the market fall, it falls hard. So, and then they come in and try to prop it up again uh, at great expense. The, the damage is not just you know, the money that's spent trying to do that. It's, it's not just the fact that you've just confirmed that moral hazard that you know, upside is mine and downside is the government's. But, uh, but you know, it just it, – it, that level of intervention, some people compare it to TARP. I don't think that's an accurate comparison. Uh, TARP was about trying to save institutions after the market had corrected. Right. So and TARP, it by the, the way, damage. The, the U.S.-based financial sector bailout where essentially the government – bought shares of the banks that looked like they were falling. Right. And I would not blame the Chinese government if there was a major brokerage or a major bank that because of all this margin lending got into a lot of trouble and was in danger of collapsing, that they stepped in and tried to stabilize that situation. I think that makes sense. But to try to hold up the whole market uh, at unrealistic valuations, that is not – uh, what was in the third plenum document, which is markets should be but decisive. But to be clear, it went, it went further than that, too. They were threatening to put people in prison, right, if they – That was the implicit short, threat. They're short sellers or whatever. Yeah, the, the, Selling I all. Mean, it's, right. yeah. The public security ministry, which is normally the people who you know, round up political dissidents, they essentially said, we are investigating sellers. Okay. I um, see. So and, and, of course, threat. then at that point – you know, you want to think twice before you sell. Having said that, people still sell. You know, it, it, what it says is that there's a lot of pressure there to, to get out of the market. Um, and, you know, it, I would even go further and say, look, it's not – not only is it not healthy for the market and for investors to not have a correction when it's necessary, it's not healthy for companies either. We think that, oh, it's so great to have a market valuation that's really high. But actually having an unrealistically high valuation distorts your decision-making. It makes you much more short-term. Uh, it, it really can be quite damaging to companies who just want to go about their business and do a good, you know, run a good business. And that's exactly what, what you know, the hope in the yeah. Chinese economy is for there to be – I mean there are lots of areas in the Chinese economy where there could really be potential for growth and productivity gains. Agriculture, logistics, healthcare, the consumer economy. I'm not down on China as at, you know in terms of its overall future, but there needs to be a correction to shift resources back to that, and that requires realistic assessments of of returns. Yeah, I'd imagine there would be secondary effects there too for later on, in which somebody who's a potential investor in a Chinese company or in the Chinese stock market would think, well, God, why on earth would I put my money in here if later on there's a chance? 
that the government's going to tell me that I can't get out, that I can't sell, and there's going to be these kinds of implicit threats about what might happen to people who do want to get out. Well, just before the peak, if you recall, I think it was in very early June, MSCI was considering adding domestic Chinese shares we to We covered its global that in indices. last week's Alpha Chat, actually. And, yeah. and I think they dodged the bullet because they basically kicked the can down the road and said, we'll decide it later. If they had decided to do that, now they it wouldn't have been at, at full valuations. It would have been in a partial uh, weighting. But they would have forced a lot of people to buy in at the peak. You know, Now there would have been a lot of unhappy people saying, why'd you make us do that? Sure. Let me just, again, to explain for our listeners, we covered this in last week's Alpha Chat. But essentially the idea is that MSCI, which puts together the, the big index for um, you know, large emerging markets, was considering adding Chinese A shares to the index, which means that anybody who invests in a fund that tracks that index – was essentially going to buy a whole lot of exposure to the Chinese stock market by choosing not to include those A shares in the index. A lot of investment that would have gone to China didn't, and some people actually credit this with having triggered the initial round of I think it took selling. some of the wind out of the sails. Um, you know, one of the stories that was circulating around the time of the peak was uh, valuations don't matter because MSCI is going to add this to the indices and – there will be people who will have to buy at whatever valuation, however ridiculous. Which really tells you something about indexed yeah. investing, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> also, valuations don't matter. Famous last word. Yes, <laughs> yes. We've heard that before somewhere, right? Uh, okay, this has been great. I actually think we don't have time uh, to cover the banking system, which I'd hope to get to. But we did get a listener Q&A for you, Patrick. So here it is. It's about Chinese macroeconomic indicators. I love the way this is phrased. It comes from Greg Allen. Greg, thanks for your question. Here's the question. I'd be very interested to hear a discussion of coverage of China economic stats in the media. Why do so many Western news outlets cover the official figures with next to no question of their accuracy? Is it laziness or willful suspension of disbelief? I think he meant willful suspension of belief. Why so little effort to string together a meaningful picture from implied measures that is quite a condemnation of all of us? Uh, but Patrick, to the more fundamental question of whether or not we can trust Chinese macroeconomic data. How do you approach this when you try to figure out what's going on in the Chinese economy? So you can answer the question of why the, why the media. <laughs> why the media? Yeah, I'm kicking it to figures. the guy who's. But I think that there has been uh, a growing awareness that you need to take a skeptical eye of particularly headline Chinese numbers, ones that that uh, no, they know are going to be quoted in the media, like GDP. There have been a number of substantive studies which don't agree exactly on what the GDP growth rate is, but usually agree that it's below 7%. Okay. Um, I think the solution is to look at a whole host of micro and macro data and try to see it as a mosaic and picture it. I don't go into it with the assumption of chi Chinese statistics are all lies, okay, um, just, just from a biased point of view. I, I say, okay, this is what they're saying. What do I have to believe to believe that number? What story do I have to believe of what's taking place? And do other numbers throughout the economy, whether it comes from the government or whether it comes from the private sector, seem to bolster that story or undercut that story? And increasingly, uh, well, this has been true for, for years now, but I think in, to a growing extent, uh, they, those other numbers do make you question those headline numbers quite, quite a bit. Okay. Matt, what should we be doing, you and I as members of the economics media? I guess one answer would be not to quote anything uh, uncritically. <laughs> uh, I mean, the 
unemployment rate in particular is notoriously yes. bad. And nobody quotes the right. unemployment rate right. for particularly that reason. You, when was the last time you heard a report that said the un- Chinese unemployment rate is 4%? Because yeah, that's what the, it's been right, forever. Right. Other than in the context of trying to figure out somehow what it actually is. Right. Uh, I don't – which is fascinating, by the way, because in the U.S. at least – Of course. It is the single most important economic indicator, Right. I mean, it has a lot of competition, but it's probably the one that we think of the most. And you never, you know. and you never hear a you know discussion about it except in China. Except this number doesn't mean anything. So what 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 should we think? Okay, Patrick Chauvinek, Silvercrest Asset Management, and professor, adjunct professor at the School of International Public Affairs at Columbia University. Thanks so much for being here. Enjoyed it, Matt. Always a pleasure. Likewise. And today's second topic, the drug Flibanserin, a.k.a. the female Viagra, has been approved by the FDA, and the company that produces it has just been bought for a billion dollars by Valiant. I'm joined for this by David Crow, who actually wrote the story on this for the FT this week. David, your debut on Alpha Chat, I'm sure you imagine that it would be about the female Viagra. Always. <laughs> and Shannon Bond, the FT's media correspondent, to talk about the social media aspect to the story. Shannon, I have run out of ways to describe you and how wonderful you are. I'm just glad to be here again. You're always so understated. Jesus. Okay, David, phlebanserin. There's actually a long and, in fact, quite dubious backstory behind this drug getting approved by the FDA. Why don't you start by just telling us the story? Okay, well, it's a, it's a drug with a very checkered past. Um, it was developed in the 1990s originally by a big German pharma company called Boehringer Engelheim, and they tested it in depression. It didn't work. But they did notice, the researchers on the trials noticed that some of the patients were reporting an increase in their libido. So and still depressed, but a little bit hornier. Still depressed, but a little bit hornier. And, and you know, one of the symptoms of depression for some people can be a loss of libido. So um, they switched focus and they started testing it in females with uh, a sexual um, disorder known as HSDD. It's hypoactive sexual Desire disorder, it's okay. called. And um, they took it to the regulators in 2010, and they didn't like it. Um, the FDA said that uh, there was you know, very little evidence that it worked, um, and there were really quite uh, pronounced safety concerns. Um, at that point, um, Sprout, uh, the company run by Cindy and Roger Whitehead, uh, as, as chance would have it, a husband and wife team, they ended up buying the molecule for... It can't have been more than a few million dollars. And then they, they again took it to the FDA in 2013, who turned it down for a second time. And uh, that's when the uh, company uh, launched a big campaign to, to try and get it approved, accused the FDA of institutionalized sexism. And lo and behold, it was third time lucky. Uh, earlier this week, it was approved. Okay, and I want to ask Shannon about this campaign. But first, I want to go back through the evidence or lack thereof that the drug works and the safety issues. Can you just describe that in a little bit more detail? Okay, so the evidence, uh, you know, to, to simplify a bit, but is, is broadly this. Uh, it, it sort of increases um, sexual encounters in, in women with a, a suppressed libido by about 0.5 times a month. So if you were having um, no sexual experiences, you could expect to maybe have one every two months, and then you extrapolate that um, up the chain. The safety concerns are 
that it has very dangerous interactions with alcohol, which is itself historically, you know, um, associated with sex and causes hypotension, which is uh, dangerously low blood pressure, fainting spells. There was a lot of concern about women driving in the morning after taking this drug, whether they'd have car accidents and so on. So there were really quite pronounced safety concerns. And there are lots of restrictions for about a year, at least, on how the drug is prescribed. After that, it could be fair game, though. So this is amazing. So in exchange for having sex six more times a year, you can't drink, you run the risk of fainting, and you have, you know, possibly other consequences that we don't know about. And the drug has been turned down by the FDA twice at this point. Shannon, let's talk about the role of social media in galvanizing, I don't know, support for this drug so that later on this year it actually would get approved. What happened? Yeah, well, so there is this group um, that had quite a big presence online and particularly on social media called Even the Score um, that sort of was out there saying, look, there's been a lot of drugs approved to treat male sexual disorders of one kind or another, and women have had nothing. Uh, well, it turns out, first of all, this group is backed by Sprout, by the company that owns the drug. The, funded, group, the group that's making these arguments. Yeah, this, this advocacy group. So they're receiving funding from them and from a PR company that's paid by Sprout. So, you know, so first of all, it's a little bit of, you know, this, this isn't exactly a grassroots movement. This is clearly advocacy. I'm part of the company. Um, but, you know, it's taking it, I think as David pointed out, you know, this, this drug, the, the sort of, it seems that the strict medical context for this drug is for people with an actual fairly rare disorder. But the way that the advocacy group has talked about it is saying, you know, essentially women should have, you know, the same sort of access that men do to Viagra, and they've painted it in a much broader light. And a lot of, you know, a lot of the criticism around this drug being approved with people saying, like, look, it's essentially, you know, patients getting online, you know, consumers getting online saying we want this and that overriding, like, the valid scientific criteria that the FDA should be using to decide. Now, we've seen actually some of these you know, sort of consumer advocacy movements in other, in other sectors besides pharma. Um, it's been pretty pronounced in the past couple of years, particularly in consumer goods. I mean, Pepsi took a, an ingredient out of one of their snack products that be, after consumer outrage that it was like a type of a, a molecule that also happened to be used in yoga mats. There's been a lot of concerns generally over ingredients in food. And you see with the rise of social media – with so much, you know, companies have these presences on social media and then consumers, you know, interact with them like they're other people and really have a direct voice to the company and the companies are under increasing pressure to respond to that. Okay, what about the FDA itself, David? I mean, how did how did essentially the doctors that had to approve this drug or not approve this drug, how did they get turned, I guess? Like, how did they go from saying, no, we're not doing this to yes, we are, even though... Nothing about the actual drug has changed, right? Well, um, exactly. And uh, the vote was 18-6. So 18 doctors voted for approval and six voted against. And even among those 18 doctors, I spoke to several of them, and they were very concerned. They, they said they did it based on, on the small but statistically significant uh, effectiveness. But um, undoubtedly, the criticism stung the FDA. The FDA is being buffeted by a wave of patient power, if you like, much of it. The, the criticisms of misogyny. Exactly, which is quite ironic. I mean, the FDA is run by a woman and the drug approval department is run by a woman as well. Um, you don't see that in every government agency, obviously. But they were stung by the criticism and they are struggling to deal with this new sort of patient power that, that they haven't had to uh, struggle with before. But there, there's something about this that just seems kind of awful. 
right? Here's a drug that was rejected twice that carries tremendous safety concerns that hasn't been altered in any way, right? And because of this campaign that's being somehow marched under the banner of feminism, right, the doctors who are meant to approve or disapprove of whether or not this drug is safe have changed their minds, not citing a better drug or alterations that were made or whatever you might, you know, whatever you might expect, right? But simply the fact that the studies themselves trying to show that the drug works have been changed. But there's one in your story, David, that's really kind of just fascinating to me and mind-blowing about what this company who bought the drug just for the sole purpose of getting it approved presented. In other words, a safety study that they presented. Why don't you tell us about it? Because this is just amazing to me. I assume this is the study on alcohol interaction. Yes. So the company were asked to produce a study on alcohol interaction. uh, And they they did a study. They did it in 25 patients, um, which is itself a terrible no-no. I mean, you cannot really work out much from a very small sample sample of that size. And then uh, the sort of icing on the cake, if you like, were that 23 of those were men, not women. And this is a drug that is being approved solely in females. What is going on here? It's I'm crazy. serious. I mean, in case you can't tell from my tone, there's something just maddening about this. OK, so <laughs> in between uh, the last time it was rejected in 2013 and now, one of the studies has 23 out of 25 patients that it was tested on being men for whom the drug is not targeted, right? This is a drug that's for women, right? In the first place, the whole thing about this being a female Viagra is a bit of a misnomer, is it not, Shannon? Viagra essentially treats like the physical problem. Right. Uh, and whereas this drug is supposed to actually work on the brain and create, you know, work on the arousal centers in the brain. So it's not even a direct comparison. Yeah. It's, not, it's not a physical arousal so issue. Men already who already want to have sex but can't perform, take right. Viagra to help them perform. Right. This treats a different issue, which is women who don't have sexual desire. Right, exactly. exactly. Okay. Exactly. Part of this comes from a bit of the media coverage of it, frankly, right? I mean, it's not accurate to call it the female Viagra, but it's really, it's a great headline. So yeah. first of all, we're seeing everybody talk about it that way. The FDA sort of took a bit of that in mind in terms of there are very, there's a lot of restrictions, as I understand it, on how it can be marketed. Actually, unlike a lot of drugs, it can't be marketed, at least initially, to the consumer. You know, Sprout has agreed to only market to doctors you know, with the idea that this is not actually meant for a broad swath of the population. It's meant to treat like a very sort of specific set of people. Of course, you know, we, as we know, first of all, there's a lot of off-label you know, use and pres- prescribing of drugs in general that happens. And also, I mean, again, with this patient power, I mean, who's to say that the, the groups aren't going to go forward and say, you know, now we want to have more access, so we want it to be more widely available. And there there could be pressure down the road. And it's an empty promise anyway to, to not market when every single website in the world is heralding the arrival of female Viagra. And the company themselves say, well, we never called it female Viagra, but they have done a lot to to sort of uh, uh, bring about that perception. I mean, the pill, for example, is coloured pink, and and one of the headlines is pink Viagra, and they must have put that colour in there. It's not you know right. naturally pink and right. and so on. So, so I mean, it, it it's the little pink like... pill, just like Viagra is the little blue pill. And they directly, I mean, in in the the campaign, you know, they talk about how there's so many, you know, tw- I think it's 26 pill, you know, drugs approved or pills approved, you know, to treat male sexual disorders and you know, only one now for women. I mean, they're they're putting an equivalency out there between, you know, Viagra and the like and this drug. 
Yeah, so there was, uh, I, I should credit the podcast of uh, Dan Savage, the relationship and, and sex columnist, who has a, a mighty podcaster himself, but he had a very research-driven and vigorously argued segment, a couple of segments actually, on two of his episodes, where he essentially said that a lot of the groups who have been galvanized to support this have essentially been duped, that essentially this campaign run by paid consultants to the company that owns the drug these consultants have put together what essentially is a tremendously effective, very clever and manipulative campaign that, I mean, to me, represents all the reasons why we should be so tremendously cynical of marketing and even of the media in some cases. And it's capitalizing on people's sort of quite sad lives as well. I mean, at the heart of this is women whose marriages are maybe breaking down, who are unable to start new relationships because they don't have a, a sexual desire. And, um, you know, if, if you can play on those fears and, and, and worries and, and build a, a sort of movement like this, it can be incredibly powerful. Well, all very interesting. Um, but we have to move ahead to the sort of outcome here. David, just today, Thursday, August 20th, we find out what about this drug? That this drug that, uh, that was all about the women that it was supposed to be helping out of, of their sort of, you know, uh, condition has been flipped for a billion dollars sold to Valiant Pharmaceuticals. Now, this made everyone uh, in, in my world smile this morning because Valiant is known as the big bad company of pharma. It buys things, it aggressively markets them, it jacks up the price, um, and, and it slashes sort of funding on research and so on. Um, so it's sort of quite an unusual home for what was such a fluffy product. Uh, although in some sense the perfect ending to this super dodgy story, right? Quite. Okay. Shannon Bond, the FT's U.S. media reporter, and David Crow, senior business correspondent for the Financial Times. Thanks so much to both of you. Thanks, Thank Dennis. you. Emilia Mahasik is out, and that's all the time we have for today's show. But again, we really encourage you to get in touch with us. You can call us at 917-551-5012. You can email us at alphachat at ft.com. You can also tweet me directly at Cardiff Garcia. This podcast is produced and edited by Amy Keene. She is what Dan Savage would refer to as the tech-savvy, at-risk youth. Thanks, Amy. If you enjoyed listening to this, you might like to try our Hard Currency podcast presented by me, Roger Blitz, the FT's Currencies Correspondent. Each week, I discuss the main talking points in the markets with experts in the field. You can find our latest show at ft.com slash podcasts every Thursday. Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up. Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win.